What is up, Brad fans? Thank you for being here. I hope you are doing well. I am very, very excited to bring you this conversation episode with Sarah Bell. I saw Sarah on Twitter tweeting some things about Ebola, and as you know, that being one of the, the most covered topics on this show, I reached out to see if she would be kind enough to give us her time on the show, and she did. She agreed. Now, Sarah is a anthropologist. She's doing her PhD at Oxford Brookes University. So she didn't come to the Ebola situation from a biology or an infectious disease angle. Um, and as you'll hear in the conversation, it was really a couple chance occurrences that led her into the research that she's now doing, which is specifically looking at the effect of the sensitization messages. So that's a, a term that gets used for the uh, public health measures or messaging that was going out uh, in Sierra Leone specifically, I think in broadly across Africa, uh, during the big the big Ebola outbreak, West African Ebola outbreak that we all remember. Um, and her work focused on the ban or messages to the local people to not eat wild game, or as you've heard it called, bushmeat. And surprisingly, this had some kind of a backfire effect. I'll let her explain it. She does a great job communicating what what it what her work is about. But obviously, you can see how this topic of you know effective messaging and communication during a public health crisis is really relevant for where we are today. So we also drifted into you know, the, the, the situation that we are in today, the coronavirus pandemic, some of the conspiracy theory stuff that we're seeing um, around that. And Sarah also does some great conservation work. Uh, and we talk about a project that she started called Panverus. So P-A-N-V-E-R-U-S. I screwed up the pronunciation during the conversation and it was very embarrassing, but it's the Panverus project. Um, and it's a great project that is, uh, whose goal is to provide employment opportunities to local people in Sierra Leone that don't involve them uh, destroying the environment. So there's a lot of illegal logging and, and this kind of stuff that goes on. Um, and they're dedicated to providing an alternative to these kind of things and in doing so provide like an actual living wage for people on the ground and working with them to best help what their situation is so taking care of their needs rather than you know some of someone else's um really great project you can go to the website panveris uh, org, uh donate get involved follow see what they're doing uh in that work i want to thank sarah again for taking the time to speak with me uh, and wish her luck on her thesis that she is writing and will defend soon um but before we get to that you know the drill rate subscribe follow all those things please comment uh wherever you're getting your podcasts follow us on twitter and instagram at two brad for you i am at b van Perdon on both those platforms our website is two brad for you dot wordpress dot com get in touch leave us a message um a question a voice message you know whatever whatever you want to do um to be part of the show please reach out. I'd love to get more interaction with the audience. Um, yeah, so comment, rate, subscribe, 
tweet at too rad for you instagram it's all good we're here on all those things all those platforms and your comments your rates your subscriptions your downloads all that stuff really helps our show pushes us up the rankings we hover in at around 200 on the science podcasts in various countries so it's kind of cool to see it go up so thank you all for that and thank you once again to sarah for joining us on the show and without further delay here's my conversation with sarah bell Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, just so the audience knows, I I did find you on Twitter because of some tweets that you were making about some of your work with Ebola, which I'd love to get to. But maybe it's best that we just start. You can sort of give us, you know, the broad strokes of your career so far, what your interest, research interests are, how you ended up where you are, because. It's so much more than just Ebola. You're looking at your CV and your website and stuff. There's wildlife conservation, anthropology, a lot of stuff going on. So maybe you can sort of fill us in in your own words. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So I am an anthropologist by trade. Um, I have degrees in anthropology and primatology, which is a subset of anthropology. Um, and I got into this work specifically because I was required to have some field work for my undergraduate degree. And my university was very archaeology heavy. Um, and that was the field work that they offered. And then that just wasn't really what I was interested in. So I ended up going with a team to study chimpanzees in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And the day that I arrived there in 2014 was the day that the Ebola outbreak was declared to have started in the country. Um, so luckily, um, my parents didn't really understand what was going on that well, because uh, I am <laughs> an only child. Um, but, you know, we stayed in the country, not, not terribly long, um, just to do a, like a short study. And when I left, I was just kind of couldn't really get this out of my mind, like this outbreak was happening. Um, and I kind of, you know, vaguely understood like, okay, well, it, it can come from animals and this kind of thing. But I remember while I was there that this sensitization was really like heavily geared towards like, don't eat chimpanzees or you're going to get Ebola and die. Um, basically, this like really inflammatory messaging around bushmeat consumption. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I wasn't able to go back to Sierra Leone during my master's because that was during the Ebola outbreak. Um, but when I kind of finished up my master's, I just really couldn't shake like what was going on and had just happened in Sierra Leone. And I was really curious as like how this had affected um, wildlife populations and humans interaction with wildlife. And so my original question when I started planning my PhD was, did this Ebola outbreak and this sensitization towards like, don't eat bushmeat, don't eat bushmeat, don't eat bushmeat, did this actually drive down people's bushmeat consumption? Or did all of these kind of negative side effects of the Ebola epidemic, which really tied into like food insecurity, did that actually increase people's reliance on bushmeat? Um, hmm. And so that was the original question I wanted to go to Sierra Leone for. Um, so I went back and kind of like bopped around, did a little bit of like a preliminary, like trying to find a field site, get, get my feet wet a little bit. Um, 
And I realized that I was asking the wrong questions because people didn't believe Ebola was real. Um, Mm. I have not spoken to anyone in Sierra Leone outside. uh, Well, very, very few. That's not true. There are some people, very few people who believe the Ebola epidemic was real, that the sickness was real, that that was what was being talked about was actually happening in Sierra Leone. And again and again, people were kind of drawing it back to, well, they told me that if I ate bush meat, I would get Ebola. And that's never happened. That doesn't continue to happen. And so this kind of dissonance between what was being communicated to people and people's lived experience was creating this vast amounts of distrust and disbelief in the whole thing, um, which meant that it was being harder and harder to contain. And Previously, Ebola outbreaks have only killed maybe 250 people before this West African outbreak. And that was the the highest death count of any Ebola outbreak. And now all of a sudden you have this outbreak that spread and killed something like um, over 11,000 people. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was kind of how... That's that's interesting because I didn't get that, you know, just from you, you, the tweets and stuff like that, that it, you sort of you came into it. Um, yeah, not from a disease perspective at all, mm-hmm. but rather like I came here to study chimpanzees and then this crazy event happened that I just happened to be there for. And then again, another shift. And it's like, OK, we have these questions, which I actually am interested in. And, you know, maybe digging into a bit later is, you know, how does an Ebola outbreak where we know that it comes from, it comes from animals. It's with, I think it's bats, you know, is sort of the the current understandings. It's likely bats is the reservoir, mm-hmm. but it can be a number of different animals that might transmit it to humans, right? Like these zoonotic diseases, we know this, but then this leads to another question of people just totally just not believing that it was a, a real thing. And that's obviously in our current situation, we're seeing a similar thing with sort of the coronavirus and stuff. And so what do you, what are your thoughts then on in terms of like what is it about the messaging? Was it just that you gave a warning, which as a you know coming from a biologist, coming from studying diseases, the warning would make sense. Be careful about consuming bush meat because we know that these animals can be a reservoir for disease. But then you you know that message, which seems reasonable to a health official is totally lost on the population because they're not seek they're not connecting that um well causality or actually that messaging is false that's a lie you will not catch bush you will not catch ebola from so the thing here is when it's bush meat it's it's probably been cooked Right. Any heat whatsoever will kill the virus. Ebola dies actually at pretty low temperatures, all things considered. It's not something that mm-hmm. you need to like boil for 10 minutes to get rid of. Leaving right. if, if um, you had a, an Ebola patient that maybe had some like uh, fluids on a, sh- on a sh- bed sheet or something, you put that sheet out in the sun, it's going to kill the virus. Um, mm-hmm. Any any smoked meat, any cooked meat, there's no risk in that. And so there was absolutely no differentiation in sensitization by saying, look, the what's risky is the fluids in the uncooked meat, the bloods, things like that, getting into your own body. Ebola is not Which like is, COVID. It's, they're, they're different yeah, things. Right. Um, and see, the thing is that like, I even know that 
and I was just using the wrong language to describe it, you know? And like, I know that, that it's like, it's the blood, it's the risk of like, when you're butchering it, you cut your finger, you cut mm -hmm. the animal, that kind of thing. And so I even just screwed it up right there. Exactly. It's so easy to do because we kind of say, uh, we just can say bush meat maybe. And I'm going to also jump in and say, I hate the term bush meat and I use it still. Mm -hmm. um, and I really need to kind of have this shift. Um, there's a quote by an anthropologist that I absolutely love. And I think it really makes us think about the word bushmeat. He says, bushmeat is to game what hut is to house. We eat bushmeat in right. North America. We eat bushmeat in Europe, but we don't kind of villainize it in the same way. And we call it game meat. Um, and we are right. like, oh, it's so ethical. Look, we're like out hunting and it's so nice. Yeah. And then, you know, you switch over to people in sub-Saharan Africa and then you kind of like villainize it. You're like bushmeat and it's bad and it conjures up all of these like negative feelings for it. You know, we, we jump in with these conservation messages with it. Um, but no one discussed the fact that it's, it's the fluids. And most times when there's a spillover event that doesn't come from a bat, which is thought to be the reservoir, a spillover event being the moment when the virus kind of jumps from animal population to a human population. You're not having repeated transmissions from animals to humans over an outbreak. You're having one single spillover event. Um, and usually that happens by people scavenging dead animals. Okay. So and not the, the hunting that we would, this no, term bushmeat that we're going to try and avoid. <laughs> and okay. they never even mentioned scavenging in these sensitization messages. And people do scavenge in Sierra Leone. They're, if they find a dead animal in the forest, they're going to eat it because they don't mm -hmm. have that much. Like the people in these rural communities, they don't have access to a lot of protein sources. Um, guns are mm -hmm. illegal. Hunting is difficult. Uh, so you take what you can get. Yeah, exactly. So the messaging really was, ah, that's difficult because it's, I feel like with science communication, you know, you're always struggling to try and find that balance, right? Of like how much information is too much information to overwhelm, you don't want to overwhelm people with these, these, with this kind of information. But in this situation, it seemed like it was, and I think, you know, to add another thought onto that, what I've seen with some of the coronavirus stuff too, is that there's a, there's a, an instinct to just do like a very blunt recommendation so that you maybe, and maybe I'm giving um, health officials and people that are in these positions a bit of leeway, you know, but it's like, the idea is like, if we just make it broad enough, then we'll cover all of these nuanced situations that we know about, but that we don't have time to effectively communicate, you know, like this is going to be more dangerous than this versus this or that. Let's just, you know, six feet, stay apart six feet and, and that's it. And, you know, when we know that like, you know, there might be more nuance to it than that. But in this case, it seems to have really like backfired. Yeah. And I, I do agree that it's kind of this constant search for like the right footing on like how much is too much information. But, you know, I, that's why I think, re so like the research that I'm doing is, is not just understanding what people's perceptions of Ebola around, like around this virus are, but I kind of went a step back and I said, okay, well, before I ask questions about Ebola, I'm going to ask questions about what do people, do people have any knowledge of sicknesses that come from animals before I even mention the word Ebola? Because if we can say, okay, well, 
they do have an understanding of this. And in fact, people did. There was in the, the area that I was in, there's a, a common uh, sickness, and I'm going to put air quotes around sickness. Um, not that it's not a sickness, but it, it's not quite what it's believed to be. Um, it's mm-hmm. called monkey sick. And this monkey sick is what was described to me, it seems like a form of epilepsy. Um, and people believe that you catch it from monkeys. Um, how you catch it and from which monkeys varies based on which communities that you talk to. But they only one community that mentioned the sickness attributed it also to consuming the wildlife. For the most part, it was like, don't touch the saliva of the monkey and don't touch mm-hmm. the fruits that the monkeys have eaten. Because and so that there's already that that base understanding. Look, it's not the cooked meat. It's maybe it's the saliva. It's the fluids. People in Sierra Leone right. are not new to sicknesses. They're not new to diseases. If you can just say, look, it's the fluid to fluid contact, then people understand that. Because if you're just saying also, look, don't eat bush meat, then you're kind of um, taking out every other way that people use animals as well and maybe they're not catching on that there's other ways it's because it's not consuming the animal and that's what was portrayed as being dangerous so i spoke to people and i'm like okay well do you eat bats ever they're like no no no, i would never eat bats and i was like okay so you don't ever like touch a dead bat and they're like oh no yeah i use them as uh, fish bait all the time i catch them and i i use them as fish bait but there would not be that connect between like don't you don't eat this for bush meat and they're like okay well i'm still going to use it for on my fish hooks, but that's yeah. the risky behavior is that is handling that dead bat with those sharp fish hooks. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. You could you can easily see how blood would intermingle there. That's an interesting point, though, too, is that you say, like, you know, people in Sierra Leone are not, you know, new to disease, but like really no culture is right. Like it's part exactly. of being a human. Like we've seen the effects of it all over. Maybe we get you know, sort of in our over sanitized European, North American sort of lives, we get, we're less exposed to it probably than most other places on the planet. Um, but there's still sort of a, a legacy of this, you know, so I, I wonder then, like, is, you know, when it comes to specifically the messaging of Ebola, but then again, let's like sort of zoom out to the current, you know, pandemic situation that we find ourselves in. Are we giving? Are we not giving people enough credit in terms of in terms of that understanding? Is it kind of a patronizing? I don't know. I, I guess that's putting some intention on people's um, actions that we don't really know. We can't really know. But it kind of feels that way. That maybe the solution is to no, no, no. People understand that there's different ways to get diseases. Like everybody learns to cover their mouth when they cough, right? Like that's just mm-hmm. a normal thing that everybody does. So there, we do understand these things more than probably health officials maybe give people credit for. Yeah, I think that it, COVID's so interesting. And um, I think that a lot of this miscommunication and like the conspiracy theories that have popped up around COVID um, cause they're absolutely off the wall. And I find it so, so, so interesting because a lot of my research ha- in, in Sierra Leone has really come down to like tracking down conspiracy theories and kind of working backwards culturally to see mm. what led to these beliefs and misunderstandings. Um, so I've been doing a lot of thinking about conspiracy theories and where these conspiracy theories come from. And it's, I think that 
while I, I agree with you, I think that we kind of need to give people a little bit more credit. I think that what's happening with COVID is, is a bit of a more unique situation in that um, conspiracy theories, and this is where I'm getting into my like um, philosophy, which I'm actually like not super great at and really happy that <laughs> I, I was forced by my undergraduate university to take my one philosophy class, yeah. which has ended up being so relevant to this. Yeah. Um, is that conspiracy theories are kind of like what we call memes, or, which are these like repeated ideas that can be spread throughout a culture. And for an idea or a conspiracy theory like that to be so widely accepted, it kind of has to come with this, you know, whole slew of other things. You know, there has to be some general distrust towards bigger authority figures. So in Sierra Leone, you had that. You have a lot of distrust with the government. Um, you have a lot of distrust with like foreign NGOs. Um, they had a really big, very bad civil war there, 1991 to 2001, that was largely influenced by um, the diamond trade. I don't know if you've seen or heard of um, Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio, but that's yeah. about Sierra Leonean civil war, quite brutal. Yeah. Um, and so then you kind of see that reflected in, say, America, who's having some issues, maybe. Uh, agreeing with the idea of this virus, you kind of see this, okay, well, there's this massive distrust in the authority system there. Um, mm -hmm. And there's all these like weird little cultural things that have to come into play to let these conspiracy theories kind of blossom out of these fringe groups and into mainstream society. Right. Um, and I think that people were really critical when I, at least people that I spoke to in the States, when I was like, oh, I study Ebola, people didn't believe it was real. And they're like, oh my gosh, like how could people see a sickness and not think it was real? And then I'm like, and now you think it came from, COVID came from yeah. 5G. And we're maybe seeing that your disbelief in them was maybe a little bit more geared towards their race probably than, um, you know, saying that people aren't very like good for not accepting a, a disease. It's all about the information yeah. you're presented with. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I totally agree with that point, too. It's it's the same with like, you know, calling something bushmeat. There's a tendency to say, oh, those kind of things only happen in those places, you know, exactly. Like, how could these people, you know, and you see it, I think, in the current or the last Ebola outbreak that was happening in the Congo, there was a lot of reports of people attacking the uh, NGO teams or the burial teams and stuff mm -hmm. like this. I mean, that's happened in these outbreaks. Um and yeah, people have a tendency to be like, how could you do that? How could you, how could you, you know, turn against the people that are trying to uh, help you? But yeah, now look in your own backyard and see the anti-vax movement, see the, yeah. you know, this distrust. So I think that's interesting. That's a good point to make is that, you know, we're all, we're all people, we're all the same. We're all susceptible to this same, you know, sort of factors uh, that lead mm -hmm. to, to misinformation. Um so distrust and distrust in sort of the higher authority is one uh, factor. Is there anything else? I mean, obviously, I think, you know, with the coronavirus stuff, social media, the way that it gets widely presented probably plays a role. Like, I don't yes, have any data on that. That's definitely. just sort of my... Like, so, the hallmarks of a conspiracy is it has to be easy to spread and difficult to refute. Um, mm -hmm. So difficult to find, like really hard evidence to refute this and any like and I think that that especially plays into maybe people's misunderstanding of 
the general field of science and the way science works in general, where we're not just like, oh, okay, I've done this experiment and now I have this very clear cut, straightforward answer that immediately solves all of our problems. You know, that's just not really how things work, especially when we're all panicked working in a pandemic, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and so any kind of like misstep or, okay, we don't have the answer for that yet, just feeds into conspiracy theories and makes them flourish, really. Um, and then you have the issue of the fact that sometimes conspiracy theories end up to be true. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> not all of them. And so then you have to differentiate between what's a conspiracy theory I should be, you know, lending time and credibility to like, and actually investigating versus like what's just an absolutely obscene idea that doesn't make any sense. Um, And largely that comes down to how many people had to agree to this conspiracy to like help it, um, help it propagate, I guess. There was an example in an article I read that was like, like an example of a conspiracy theory that probably you don't need to give much credibility to is the faking of the moon landing. Because that would require You'd be surprised how many people <laughs> give credibility it, to that. I know, but it would require thousands of scientists to like all be coming together to agree, and like multiple foreign governments who were also monitoring the whole situation to also be faking it. Like that's too many people to be faking something, is what it comes right. down to. Um, it's like, um, you know, again, I'll reach into my philosophy, one class of philosophy from undergrad mm-hmm. and the Occam's razor, right? Like, it's like how many, how many, the, the, the least or the least complicated scenario is probably the, the correct one, you know? And so with each of these, you have to add a layer of complexity. Well, then if they need to keep it secret, then those people need to keep it secret and it just becomes less and less plausible. But yet we see a lot of people, you know, are still susceptible to this. And so I'm curious then, like, if your, your work in Sierra Leone has found, um, you know, what sort of, what, what, what would you have recommended different? Like, what, what is the, what is the solution? And and we just mentioned that there's no clear cut solutions in science for these things, but are you finding any sort of recommendations or what are you, what are you, what are you leaning towards? Well, I think that it's kind of this, it's just such an interesting thing because it really like involves so many players and you kind of, and I think something that I'm starting to question now is like, for me, I'm like, please just stop blaming bushmeat, like remove the blame from bushmeat because it's, it's just a nasty thing to do all around. You know, it doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't benefit conservation. It doesn't benefit the people who are suffering, who are relying on these, uh, this food source for protein. Um, and it, it just doesn't help anything. But like, why on earth does the WHO feel the need to constantly push this message, especially across the African continent? And they just did it again with COVID. Um, there's a study done by a uh, Bernard Sater, S-E-Y-T-R-E, I believe. Um, And he looked at the COVID communications in uh, 15 different countries in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, I think particularly in West Africa. And he found 11 of those talked about like not handling livestock 
thoroughly cooking your eggs to avoid COVID. I mean, it's that just ridiculous. Sense. <laughs> like these health organizations seem to go for this like kind of uh, fire hose approach, which is what Sierra Leone did in when Ebola started, where they just kind of like blast every single health message that they can all at the same time, maybe just hoping that something would stick. But that really detracts from everything else that's going on. Like you don't need to tell people like, oh, like careful for Ebola, like boil the water before you drink it. Like, yeah, probably people should drink clean water, but it's not going to, that's not what's going to determine whether or not you get Ebola. Um, Mm -hmm. That's, you know, you're kind of distracting from this idea because if someone goes, well, maybe I'm not doing that one thing, but I'm boiling my water at least, you know, well, great. I'm glad you're boiling your water. Please don't shake hands or touch sick people um you know that's what we need to focus on so do you um, think that there's like a linking like if you link you know, there's a you have all these health messages that you know for different things would be good like boiling water obviously for a different pathogen and just in general good thing to do but for ebola no influence whatsoever so do you think that there's a in a linking of of false me- you know of messages that is a that also becomes a problem because then people say, well, it leads to the mistrust, I guess, is the point I'm trying yeah. to make. Because like, I've You're been doing all these things. And I yeah, can still get Ebola. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's, that's good. And then why is anyone going to have any faith in what you're saying if, mm-hmm. you know, the, the preventative, me- the so-called preventative measures that they're telling you to take are absolutely completely irrelevant? Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. how frustrating is that? And especially, you know, like Sierra Leone, just, they, they just made a lot of mistakes going into this. They really ostracized local people in a big way. They made, um, traditional medicine illegal when working with traditional healers would have been so much better. You know, these are people who are trusted and respected in their communities. And instead of working with that network who already has access to all of these people and knowledge of what their healthcare is like because they can't afford to go to hospitals they can't afford to go to clinics the communities that Mm -hmm. i've interviewed they're a two and a half day walk from the nearest clinic which doesn't have a doctor at it you know another two days to get to a hospital which that's a hospital that no one recommends you go to they so (laughs) you know so you think that like um sort of by working with those people, not only do you get an access to remote communities um, and you get trust from these, you know, respected people in the community, but that you could also sort of leverage the kind of um, local knowledge, you know, that they already have, like we talked about, like this idea of and uh, di- diseases coming from animals, right? Mm-hmm. That seems like a logical thing. Now, I know that... Um, and again, this this could just be like sort of, you know, this patronizing Western world looking into the situation. But I know there was reports of um, uh, having difficulty breaking some of cultural traditions and stuff in terms of burial and stuff like that, which were actually, you know, transmission points. So it, could you envision a conflict there or is it not a big enough conflict that couldn't be resolved? You know, like the benefit would still be worth it to try and not try and jump over these people and dis- disregard them, but rather work with them? I would hope so. I think, um, so I guess, fortunately for the communities that I know, the people that I know in these, in where I was working, 
they respected the rules about burials. Um, and I know that that wasn't the case other places. Actually, how they think the Ebola came like came over the border from Liberia was through, was it Liberia? Yes, um, was from a traditional healer. And when she con- contracted the virus in Liberia and came back to Sierra Leone, she died. And she was such a well-known and prominent healer. Um, and they will uh, basically kind of parade the body um, mm-hmm. and everyone will kind of come out and you touch the body um, to say goodbye. And because she was so prominent, they paraded her through multiple villages. And right. there were 365 Ebola deaths from this one funeral. Um, but it, it, they just, the way the sensitization teams went about it, and I think one of the reasons why you had this kind of like disconnect and distrust with this is because rather than, you know, talking, like what they did in the villages where I worked seemed good. You were allowed to prepare the burial site. You just weren't allowed to take the body from where that person had died and move it to where they were going to be buried. Um, That had to be done by the Ebola burial team. But the village, they were able to do like anything around the grave site that they wanted. They were able to choose the grave site. But if you died in an Ebola treatment center, your, your loved ones would never know where you ended up. Most likely you would end up in a mass grave. Um, And that's very troubling for people for very obvious reasons. That wouldn't, that's not, you know, we can imagine that being troubling. We would be very upset if our parents went into a treatment center. They said, you can't see them. Um, And what happened to people there is, is anyone with a fever pretty much was thrown into a treatment center. And I asked a doctor, um, you know, I told her, I was like, in one of my interviews, um, this Dutch doctor who'd been working in Sierra Leone for eight years at the time. um, I asked her, you know, I was told by people that they believe that like nine out of 10 people who went into these Ebola treatment centers didn't have Ebola. And she's like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was about that, um, that that's wow. not that far off. Uh, she said that they just really didn't have any way of separating people. Um, right. And everything was just like really quite poorly managed. And mm-hmm. what's kind of interesting is I think that this kind of then plays into this other level of like, conspiracy theory within the like foreign aid workers within Sierra Leone because I've asked people well where are the intake numbers for the people who were tested on arrival and then maybe it took a couple of days for those test results to come back um and I've heard that they all were lost in a fire huh um I don't know that whether or not that's true but I I can't track them down um and so that's, that's scary. You know, any person with a fever can be taken into this treatment center and then basically they just disappear. Um, yeah. I talked to people and I was talking to this man and his wife um, had a scheduled hospital appointment and she went into her scheduled hospital appointment and they came out two hours later and said, sorry, she's died of Ebola. Um, wow. And that was kind of a miscommunication because they just had to treat every death like Ebola for safety reasons. But I think mm-hmm. rather than m- trying to communicate that, everyone just says, well, no, you couldn't die of anything but Ebola during the Ebola epidemic. And that doesn't right. make sense to people either. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially if you go in, you're totally healthy, you go in for a routine, whatever, and two hours yeah, later. Had an appointment you know, about her blood pressure, and then she was dead. Yeah. So then again, this seems to me like, you know, part of me wants to 
have some sympathy for health officials and stuff on the ground where it's like you're dealing with a terrible outbreak and yeah, maybe there and lack of resources. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Yeah. Like you don't have the resources to test everybody for Ebola as they come in the door. So you're using again, the crude instrument that you have, which is fever. And then, mm -hmm. and then, you know, maybe nine out of 10 of those people don't have it, but now they're in the place where they're likely to get it, you know, like mm -hmm. they're in the, so there's that, but then there's also, it seems like, and if this is my personal opinion, I don't really have a lot to sort of back it up on or anything, but I mean, obviously we have the historical legacy of, European countries coming into Africa and taking what they want, doing what they want. So there's a distrust and stuff there. So that obviously plays a role. Yes. But sometimes I feel like, you know, this maybe not so much the medical community, but the science community can still kind of do the same thing. You know, it's, it's a, it's a cool thing to, to go to someplace, you know, and maybe study something, but there's not a lot of, interaction maybe and I'm, I'm basing this on conversations i've had with one or two other people so it's very you know very much my own opinion but i wonder how much of that mentality is still there from organizations even like the who which obviously is a useful organization but still kind of has this paternalistic mentality mm -hmm. of like whether it's we don't have the resources to deal with this so just do it or it's like these people won't understand so this is just what we're doing don't bother trying to explain it to them because we just have to get this done. You know, like yeah. how much, like how much of it is sorting through all of those factors? Um, it's a lot like that just has, I think that you just can't really like look at anything cultural in a place like Sierra Leone, like going so far back. I mean, this was one of the hubs of the like human trafficking export point for the slave trade. Um, mm -hmm. It, <laughs> like that it people kind of like taking advantage of Sierra Leone I well, a whole chapter in my thesis is kind of like going back and looking at how for hundreds of years white people have been coming in and taking absolutely everything um and then now there's not that much stuff left in, in Sierra Leone, especially when it comes to wildlife. Like David Attenborough's first time on television was going to Sierra Leone and walking around being like, can I buy any chimpanzees off of anyone? Um, <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden you have all of these white people coming back in and being like, oh my God, you're catching chimpanzees. Like stop yeah. that immediately. You're going to die. And like, what a ridiculous like thing to switch to. And like, that's within people's lifetimes. You know, this mm -hmm. is happening. Um, and so I do think that, like, especially, like, places maybe aren't putting that much. Oh, it's just so hard. Like, why why are they so quick to be dismissive of um, people and the cultures and, like, trying to learn from that to, like, shape these messages? Um, you know, I can take a few guesses as to why people do that, and none of them are very wholesome. Um, but, you know, there, there was a massive call for like more involvement of anthropologists and things like that in, in the Ebola outbreak and trying to learn from these messages and, or I don't think it really happened quickly enough. And, and it's reflected in a lot of things, like the fact that they didn't go with people who spoke the languages and they'd often rely on like very local translators, like showing up into a village and just kind of like hoping someone that didn't only speak the like local um dialect 
mm-hmm. like helping with they spoke one of the more like widely spoken languages. And I think that when you do that, it, it's not only a little bit disrespectful for the fact that you just couldn't find someone who spoke the language of the people you're trying to communicate with. Um, but that relies upon the fact that the person who you're using as a translator is going to be able to like translate potentially nuanced words about viruses and diseases and epidemiology that they might not have proper translations for. Like when I started working with someone who spoke Susu, because most of my interviews were done in Susu with the aid of a translator, that's not a really widely spoken language in Sierra Leone. And I really have struggled to find more than one person who can really adequately translate um, Susu with like academic Mm. words in it and stuff in a way that, that is actually understandable to people. Um, and I had to sit down and with him and kind of go through like, okay, well, this is what I mean. How do you think that this is going to translate? And, you know, we had to kind of sit down and figure that out together. And that just obviously wasn't done, whether or not it was just out of a mad rush to try and get as many people sensitized as possible. Um, I don't know, but I do know that my research has shown that the more sensitization that people were exposed to, the less likely they were to believe in the virus. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sensitization is just like these messages, this like these health messages, this sort of outreach UNICEF, campaign or whatever WHO, you want to call it. Maybe done yeah. by the government. Um, yeah. Like it just all that information just got really kind of twisted up and misconstrued. And like people were I'm like talking to people, they're like, yeah, UNICEF came in and they told us that like if we eat fish, we're going to get Ebola. And I'm like, I don't know if someone did say that to you or like, yeah. You know, yeah. And I wonder how much too, it's like you said, well, there's the translation thing, but then also just, you know, the old childhood game of telephone, right? Like where you say one thing and then it gets yeah. on, passed on, passed on the me- by the end, the message is so distorted. I mean, I am like, for sure, there's, there's people that work in these organizations that probably are dismissive of local countries. You know, that is for sure mm-hmm. a thing. There's also, you know, lack of resources, a crazy mm-hmm. situation. So it's tough to, yeah, it's, you know, it seems like a big tangled mess of things to do, but it also seems like that there's very clear kind of paths forward in terms of just sort of common sense and being like, look at, there's lots of, you know, indigenous local knowledge that you can leverage that we need, you know, it's the same in my native country of Canada. There's a number of researchers that are working in the Arctic um, with Mm -hmm. the Inuit peoples and stuff. And they'd be like, they know a lot about this stuff that we don't know. So it's Mm -hmm. like to just dismiss it as mystical, whatever their beliefs or something is wrong. There's obviously you're just using two different languages to describe similar phenomenons, right? Exactly. Um, so there's that thing. And it's like what interested me was you were saying how there was like a sort of call to get more anthropologists involved in this stuff. Because then it is like we don't have like the even if there is a, um, a lack of resources, we could spend them more effectively in terms of making sure that the messaging and the health initiatives and all of that stuff, there's more uptake of it because we understand where those breakpoints are in, you know, where the message is either getting lost or misconstrued or there's distrust and and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, and disease itself seems like it's such a, you know, I think we all now kind of have an experience of it 
of how sort of personal it is and how yeah. cu cultural, you know, our responses to it are, is, but also that like, we all kind of have similar, you know, human beings all kind of have similar fears and reactions and stuff to disease. So this idea of blending, you know, anthropology with sort of outbreak science and stuff on the surface might not make sense, but it really, it's really, really, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, I just don't think that, like now, obviously, I'm going to be super biased in that regard, um, because yeah. I think it's so important. And, but just because of, of how much I've learned and kind of how I couldn't possibly have even like starting out and like trying to be as well read on the subject as I could going into my field work, like so quickly realizing that I was asking the wrong questions. I was wording things the wrong way. I was maybe afraid to just straight up ask people, do you think Ebola was fake? Because that's a perfectly acceptable question. You know, like nobody kind of really bats an eye at that question. They're like, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. Like, mm -hmm. no. Um, and so then to kind of like have figured out like, okay, look, there's so many links that we maybe didn't see um, just like looking at the surface, you know, even as someone who was in Sierra Leone when the outbreak started, not being, not even really being aware the entire time the outbreak was going on that people just didn't think it was real. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just sure it's just because nobody asked. Yeah. <sighs> So total oversight kind of thing. Yeah. And that's what an anthrop, I, in my mind, that's what an anthropologist is there for is to kind of like help people understand how culture plays into the way that we react to things and in, in our everyday life and like how by taking culture into account, we can do things better like disease communication or like conservation, like these are things that are very people centric, despite the fact that they involve like other factors like sicknesses or wildlife. But you need to kind of understand where people stand with those issues on their own before you go in and say, well, I want to give you this knowledge. Well, I need to know what your knowledge is first, um, because maybe that's relevant and maybe that's useful to what we're going to be talking about and just to kind of un like assume that people don't have any knowledge on this that is useful or relevant is really a very dismissive thing. Yeah. Dismissive. And I guess we've, we, there's evidence harmful, you know, like it, it backfires, yeah. you know, like we've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating and, and it's very cool to me that you, you know, sort of, yeah, kind of stumbled upon this, this area yeah. And then the coronavirus situation happens. And so it's kind of, you're kind of find yourself in almost the perfect, the perfect, you perfect place for research, you know, everywhere you go. So I'm, I'll be looking forward <laughs> to where you end up next, because that could be an indicator of what, what, what we should I expect. Know. I was, when I was in Sierra Leone, when kind of COVID really took off, I arrived there in January of this year. Um, and my university like pretty quickly shut down and said like absolutely no one can do research that involves like human participants and, and doing inter interviews is obviously um, I'm participating with humans. Um, but because there were no confirmed cases in Sierra Leone for like quite a while, even after they shut all the borders and things like that, um, I was I was granted special permission to continue. I was like, wait, please, like, don't make me stop. This is so relevant. Like, I need to keep asking people questions. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because 
here all of these conspiracy theories that I've been studying for the last two years were resurfacing and kind of twisting and now it wasn't oh it was created in a lab by the CIA now it's created in a lab by China or I heard people saying like oh China did this on purpose to get back at the states the states did this on purpose to get back at China you know and like people's like interpretations like foreign conflict coming into play with this in Sierra Leone and then this massive fear the biggest one about COVID in Sierra Leone I heard was Bill Gates Oh my God, everyone hates Bill Gates there. And I (laughs) feel really bad for him because, you know, I, you know, I, for all the things to, to dislike, um, about someone, I feel like Bill Gates doing his best with, um, vaccines is not one of them. Um, but there's this big fear that, um, Sierra Leoneans and and Africans in, in general, we're going to be used as test subjects for these vaccines, um, which was not helped when some French scientists actually said as much on the news quite yeah. early on in the outbreak. Um, yeah, I mean, I was listening, like a lot of news nowadays is, is done via social media and via WhatsApp and stuff like that. And I was listening to all of these kind of almost sermons that were being sent around to my friends in Sierra Leone. Um, not, And these weren't from... Sierra Leonean people originally these sermons they were from I don't know where all across the continent um saying like don't let anyone vaccinate your child like if someone if anyone comes near your child with a needle like they're going to inject them with COVID like this is a white man's sickness this is a white man's sickness it was created in a place where there are white men if it's not going to come to Africa it can't affect Africans anyone saying that it can is lying to you this is a white man's disease so that was a really quite a different interpretation from Ebola, which they, you know, was still interpreted as fake, but definitely um, is known to be, uh, I guess, if you want to say that, an African sickness. Yeah. Like it comes from the continent. Yeah, of endemic, from yeah, our to knowledge. use the science term, yeah. Yes. Um, and so, you know, you didn't have that with Ebola, where people, they, they still thought Ebola is real this ebola outbreak isn't real because we know ebola exists in congo we know it exists in other places we hear about it on the news we have never known it to be here Mm -hmm. um and then so covid kind of showing up the same way they were like no 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 we have never known this to be here so it was yeah it was brought in technically (laughs) and i mean you see this like i've seen this in people back home with the COVID thing too, right? They're like, well, I believe that the, I believe that the virus is real, but I just don't think that it's as bad or, you know, it's being Mm -hmm. overblown or people are using it as a cover to, you know, sneak in different, you know, things to take over my life, you know, kind of thing, which again, I mean, if you sit back and think about it sort of logically, you know, if you take like, let's just take the mask situation, you know, like this is somehow some kind of, way to make you obey and like enforce control over the people or something like i mentioned before we all cover our mouths when we cough like we're all taught that so it's like we should, why is this one step further yeah, all we of should, a sudden yeah like exactly. an authoritarian regime trying to take over the world yeah Honestly, and, and that connection happen. should be there right like like you said like people have a connection with disease they understand you know more of the more than maybe scientists give them credit for that 
you cough disease comes out you know like that's a thing mm -hmm. so it's that one to me is so curious to me as to why that one is sort of picking up steam in some groups but then i'm i'm looking at it and i'm thinking well in in, in the terms of the coronavirus the covid stuff sometimes it feels like these people just don't want to you know there's there's a they've come so far into this group and maybe it's you know they get this really positive group identity feeling from being parts of these groups or something but it's like they don't it's not it's gone beyond just i'm misinformed it's i so far like i'm so far on this path that i don't like doesn't matter what the information is this is what i'm doing this is what i you know believe i'm against this kind of thing so i wonder how much of that is the distrust this sort of innate distrust or the, you know, the intensity of the messaging or, you know, there's so many factors going on, but. So something that I've kind of wanted to look into with that is, is what's the role in people wanting to kind of distort the messaging to be able to fit their own truth. Um, and I had kind of wondered that a little bit um, with the way that, the bushmeat messaging was interpreted in Sierra Leone is that people didn't want to stop eating bushmeat because they they knew that they relied on it. So I think that obviously you can't catch it from eating bushmeat. We've been through that. But like kind of forcing this like, okay, well, we don't want to accept something that's going to make our lives more difficult either way. Um, and I kind of see this almost kind of like flexibility in what you're like willing to accept versus not willing to accept based on like how convenient it is for you. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, obviously, I personally don't feel like wearing a mask is a very big inconvenience for me. <laughs> um, it's certainly but, not um, asking you to cut out your one of your only sources of protein. It's not to that level. Exactly. <laughs> it's like let's let let's be real and say people are being a bit dramatic about that. Yeah. But I do think that it is kind of wanting to like, you know, be like, well, I'm not willing to accept that because there that accepting that would force me to change the way I live my day to day life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really hard pill for some people to swallow. Like they're going to kind of pick and choose this. And I guess I see this in, um, in, in some of my friends in Sierra Leone. So Sierra Leone's very split uh, uh, religion-wise between Islam and Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, but it's pretty much exclusively Muslim in the area that I work in. And the Quran states that you shouldn't eat certain types of animals. They're not halal. So primates, anything with like a human-like hand, you're not, you're not meant to eat. Um, predators, you're not meant to eat. And so I've discussed this with my friends before and said like, okay, well, you know, I know, like we both know that you're eating monkey on a pretty regular basis. Um, and I don't, I really, I don't talk to people about like, don't eat this, don't eat this. That's, that's not my job. Even as a conservationist, that's not my job. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm chatting with my friend, like, okay, well, I know that you're actually a pretty strict Muslim. You won't smoke, you won't drink, but you will eat monkey. Now, why will you eat monkey? Like, why is this acceptable to you when, you know, I, like, we both know that you know it's not um, advisable by the Quran. And I really hope that I'm using the word halal correctly because <laughs> I um, don't want to mess sure. that up. Yeah. Um, and he was like, well, God knows I'm hungry and he'll forgive me for this. 
Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, okay, well, where, where is that like level of, okay, well, I'm willing to accept this. I shouldn't be drinking or smoking, but I'm not willing to accept that I shouldn't be eating monkeys because I feel that I need to continue to eat monkeys yeah. um, to survive. Whether or not I personally believe that this particular friend needs to continue to eat monkeys to survive or whether or not he just likes them. Um, everyone says the meat is very sweet because of how much fruit that they eat. I've um, never so tried. <laughs> I am not aware if I have tried it. Yeah. <laughs> but I have been accidentally fed some things before. It's possible, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting point, though, to me, because I see that, like, I think that makes a lot of sense, what I was just saying about the mass people. And obviously, I mm-hmm. still think it's like, you know, a pretty minor inconvenience and a little petty, but th- at least that psychology sort of makes sense to me that like we're, because, you know, I can admit that, you know, I'm as, as much as I try to be, you know, logical and follow the rules surrounding Corona and stuff too, for sure, there's gaps in my thinking that are probably based on that same thing, you know, and I've seen it in other people who are well-intentioned, you know, doing things to try and follow all the rules, but like you're washing your hands is an easy one, right? Like, so it's like, I come home, I wash my hands. That's easy. doesn't inconvenience me that much. Now going out um, and meeting a friend, you know, I really want to do that. That's less of a, you know, inconvenience, exactly. more of an inconvenience stuff. So you're willing to let that slide when what maybe we now know about coronavirus is that meeting people is more dangerous than washing your hands but in your head you can be like well i'm doing these things you know like i'm you know and, and our I'm memories are always yeah. false you know we always like portray ourselves better and stuff so that's a really i feel like that's again like such a universal human thing that we're seeing and that maybe we can all like as we you know if we're the people that look at the instagram videos of anti-mask people freaking out which i may be one of those people and sort of look at them with a bit of a sideways glance, it's good to remember that, you know, I'm on a similar level. Like I might not be that far, but I'm on yeah, the spectrum. spectrum of, of like, okay. So, Cause you were kind of then bringing in this like intersection of like personal morality and science mm-hmm. where at the end of the day, like, well, we're just going to be like, well, okay. And I do that. Like the thing that comes to my mind that I'm particularly bad about with like, okay, I know that this is the right thing to do is by recycling. I am really bad. Like sometimes if I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to wash that out before I'm going to have to recycle it. I'm just going to be right. like, oh, well, like, nobody's around. Like it's going in the bin. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm like being an environmentally minded person. I know that that's bad and that that's wrong. But I'm like, okay, well, I know that I do lots of good things. So I'm just going to throw this in the bin. And that's kind of like almost in the way of like the same thing. Like, okay, well, yeah, I wash my hands. I wear my mask when I go to the shops, but I'm seeing my friends I haven't seen in a while and I'd really like to give them a hug. Yeah. You know, and that's where we kind of are like, okay, well, we know that that's bad, but mm-hmm. we're all going to kind of pick and choose like where our own line is. And right. then, you know. Yeah. And it's <laughs> interesting from a, for you to then I think of like sort of the biology and my background and sort of epidemiology, you know, that I have, you think of like how that's, it's kind of, I mean, obviously, you know, doing some things is better than doing nothing, 
but like we've discussed, there's a hierarchy of of things that you can do that are, this is more risky, this is less risky, this will help you protect you more, this is more. But we mm -hmm. get this in our heads where it's like, well, you know, I, I haven't been out for seven days uh, and I've been washing my hands and doing all that. So just this one time should be fine because you get like, you feel like you've built up exactly. protection mm -hmm. when really anytime you works. do that, yeah, anytime you do that activity could be the time, anytime, you know? And exactly. so it's really hard for us to, to grasp, which again, I think is so interesting that, you know, the connection between anthropology and psychology and this, you know, disease outbreaks. There's such, there's such mm -hmm. a rich um, area of research and thought, you know, that we don't really consider a lot of times and it's playing out in front of our eyes, you know, so maybe this is sort of a wake up call in terms of we, we do need more anthropologists and behavioral psychologists and stuff looking at these things, how we behave in these situations. Well, I definitely know that I had to go through like my whole thesis and change like it's not if but when another dis like disease outbreak will happen and be like, all right, crap, like it's happened. <laughs> Backspace, like reference 2020. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, it's, it's just yeah, I guess like, in some ways, like there have been people who've been like shouting from the rooftops, like, okay, this is going to happen. And then it happens. And then we're all like, okay, we need this like abrupt cultural shift. And we're like, if we all would have just been like, being a little bit more mindful in like smaller ways for a longer period of time, we wouldn't have to ask people to do these massive mm -hmm. cultural shifts. And I think that it's like these cultural shifts, especially coming from COVID are actually tackling a lot of, um, and, and I am American. So my, a lot of my personal cultural references are going to come from America, despite the fact that I've been living in the UK for a while now. Mm -hmm. Um, this kind of culture of like coming into work when you're feeling a bit unwell. Yeah. Um, and now all of a sudden we're like, no, 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 like stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home. Um, to an extent, I think that there's still companies out there who are like, that's fine. Come in anyways. Yeah. Um, whereas like you might have, like you might see in other places where um, I've at least been hearing a lot more about this in, in like different parts of like, like in South Korea and Japan, like if you are feeling unwell, it's a common courtesy to wear a mask just yeah. to not spread this sickness, which we know spreads through you breathing and coughing and sneezing on other people. But like in the States, all of a sudden this is like this horrible idea of like, how could we possibly cover our snot holes to protect other people? Like, <laughs> Um, yeah. When, um, and so I think that we're, we've kind of like let these like slightly unhealthy things fester for a long time. And now it's trying to be like, no, 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 stay home if you're sick. Don't work. Like, don't ask any of the people who were doing things like teaching on Zoom calls, like that poor woman in, in South America who died of COVID while teaching a Zoom lecture. Yeah. You know, we kind of need, I think it's important that we kind of like take a step back and be like, look, how can we integrate like healthier behaviors in our everyday life so that we are not having to do this massive yeah. shift again? Yeah. So that it's not like zero to a hundred. It's just, we exactly. can live in a more balanced way. I mean, I feel like some of that is, you know, obviously you're coming from Canada, um, don't, but I feel like Canada is kind of like a, a halfway point between Europe and, and America, you know, we kind of lean mm -hmm. towards more America 
um, in terms of the work culture. So this idea of, you know, ah, well, you know, I really, there's a deadline coming. So I really got to go to work, even if I'm feeling sick and get that done and work overtime and sort of stress out your body and stuff that way. Um, is we have that in Canada and now living here in Germany, you know, you see the opposite where it is. It's like, if you're sick, you don't go to work. Like, you know, mm -hmm. but you know, people also get plenty of coverage for sick days, you know, and 30 days off every year. And, yeah. you know, like there's more of an emphasis on this idea of if we take care of people as a group, mm -hmm. you know, we all chip in and pay for healthcare and stuff. And we do it in Canada too. We have the universal healthcare and stuff. It's like, that's better in the long run, but we've sort of let these things erode, like you were saying, in some places, these mm -hmm. sort of ideas of how we can just live, you know, to buffer ourselves against these things. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a, I feel like we could go forever on this space and I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, your, your published work when it comes out and your thesis and stuff. I do, did want to talk to you though, before I let you go about the pan versus project that you started, because this goes into your conservation work. Now, maybe I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't, I didn't say I was going to talk to you about this, but I'd, I'd love for you to get that message out there for, for people because it's, you know, your, your explorations of Ebola and you know, the link to wildlife and stuff there too, sort of, it all kind of plays into this, into this as well, that we have this cultural and just physical existence with animals. And how do we, you know, deal with this? Yeah. So I created the pen, it's Panveris and autocorrect change it to Versus all the time. <laughs> uh, you are not first and nor will you be the last. It's actually a play on words from the scientific name of the Western chimpanzee, which is Pan Troglodytes Veris, but also in kind of a Latin Greek, it means the whole truth. So we oh, okay. Great. don't look at conservation from one angle. We try to examine the whole truth of conservation. Um, and we do a lot of uh, community-based and like community-first conservation. Um, and we're still a young organization. And I thoroughly believe that before you kind of jump into doing any actions, um, you need to thoroughly understand the environment that you're working in. Um, because of the civil war that was in Sierra Leone, there hasn't been a lot of wildlife research done in the country. So we do like wildlife conservation and we do or wildlife research and then kind of conservation action. Um, and we've kind of been working our way towards figuring out what the best way to tackle kind of like human wildlife uh, conflict essentially is, is seems to be the main driver um, and then habitat loss. Uh, there's less than 4% of Sierra Leone's original cover, forest cover remaining, um, and they are being massively targeted for logging, largely illegally for export to China uh, for the African rosewood trade. Um, I mean, Sierra Leone's like natural resources have just been absolutely pillaged globally. For a long time, it was Europe, and then it was the States, and then... Now, really, it's China. China has a really strong hold on the um, environment, especially like all the seafood is just being like they are drag netting the crap out of the oceans in mm. Sierra Leone. Um, and so the national park that I do a lot of my work in was just really heavily targeted by this illegal logging. And within a year, I think they pretty much wiped out every rosewood tree that's in the national park. Yikes. 
Um, and we see a lot of like humanitarian issues that kind of crop up with that. Like uh, now there's not really any functional, even pit toilets left in the park because there was such a massive influx of people that everything just kind of overflowed. And it's a bit, that's quite unsanitary. Yeah. Um, you see an increase in prostitution, uh, mm. especially with like child prostitution and things like that. Um, and all for these logs, which like no one's really getting much money for. Like the the youths, and I say youths in Sierra Leone is under 35s. They're being paid like the equivalent of like 50 cents a day to go and haul all of these logs. And then maybe the chiefs of the villages are getting 10 cents for every tree that's cut down. Mm-hmm. So, like, no one's really getting any money on the ground level out of this. Um, and then there, the elephants have been moving into people's fields because of all of this. So we're trying to find alternative income sources, basically. Like, what are some jobs that we can help create for people that are not quite destructive? And by paying actual salaries to people, like, yeah. actual, like, minimum, at least minimum wage. And minimum wage in Sierra Leone is low for city living but is astronomically high for the kind of like cash flow income that people in these rural uh, economies were having before Mm -hmm. i mean these people were not really seeing more than maybe a hundred to a hundred and fifty dollars a year total move through their hands wow um and then to have the minimum wage salary which just went up to being like um 65 to 70 dollars a month you know, we're able to kind of teach people skills that are a bit transferable, like computer skills, data entry, data collection, and then they can help us and actually make like money that's going to then kind of be distributed about around the village, because that's just how these communities work. Um, And it's kind of environmentally friendly jobs that aren't dangerous and aren't illegal, like logging and illegal, like gold mining. And so that's Mm -hmm. kind of the first thing that everyone always wants. They're like, please help us, help us find jobs. Um, Help us get, because there's just no jobs. There's something like 70% unemployment in Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Um, I mean, this is like, I've heard of this idea before where it's like, you know, like a tree is worth more dead than, than alive. Like how do we find ways to change that metric and provide jobs that, are, are, you know, not destroying the environment. Mm-hmm. You went in and you said, you know, you, you focus on knowing what these, what these communities need and what they're about and stuff like that. So you have had, you know, obviously they, they would like jobs. They would like to live. They would like to have this stuff. What is their sense of like, how, what are their ideas, I guess, around how do we change, how do we change this? Or are they kind of maybe just a bit exasper- exacerbated that like, for years, everything's just been taken from us. So like, this is just the way it goes, you know? I think that, especially when understanding a place like Sierra Leone, like, unfortunately, Sierra Leone, and I don't know if this is an official term, I should probably look it up. I I always call it, it's like an aid economy. Mm -hmm. Most of the jobs in that country are based off of like foreign aid and foreign like projects coming in. And so there's absolutely no sense that especially in these rural communities that the government's going to be doing any of these jobs like providing education providing health care providing access to work there's there's zero expectation that the government's going to do that right. um they they expect that that can be done by the aid organizations that come in so especially coming in as a foreigner 
they're like, okay, well, are you going, are you here to build me a school? I'm like, no, I'm not here to build you a school. <laughs> What's your point then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're also, they are exasperated because in the national park, even there, as I was, um, I walked to every village inside the Otamba section of the national park um, and the park staff had not even been to every community that was inside this park, which is exasperating. Um, but I, they were like, Oh, come look at this school that this project, which is UK based and quite a big project in Sierra Leone. Um, it was actually recently visited by a member of the Royal family in Sierra Leone. Okay. They're like, oh, look, they this project has built us a school. And I'm looking at them, and they're like, well, they didn't finish it. And they never gave us a teacher. So <laughs> there's a bunch of concrete blocks um, with a caved-in roof. And there's like three or four of these, like, quote, unquote, schools inside the National Park. I actually reached out to the organization. I was like, hi, I'm kind of curious. Like, were you planning on finishing these schools? I, I'm, I'm curious to know how you got permission to build inside of a national park where that's illegal mm -hmm. no response obviously um but they these people in these communities are kind of used to that they're like used to someone coming in saying look we're going to do something for you and then everyone not just delivering leaving. yeah yeah or delivering something that's non-functional or delivering something that nobody wants like yeah. um a world bank provided a just buckets of money to this national park and they tried to do this like community these like agriculture projects where they gave everyone pineapple plants um probably because they were hoping it would be kind of like a cash crop that they could sell yeah but one of the biggest things that these people suffer from is animals coming onto the farms to for to look for food because there's not a lot, enough forest left and not enough wild food left um and you know who loves pineapples? I'm guessing Monkeys. wildlife, yeah. <laughs> Monkeys love pineapples. So what they did is they gave out 300 monkey magnets to this village and no one there, <laughs> one person still grows pineapple in yeah. that village. Yeah, yeah. Like, what a waste. Did you not ask anyone? Like, do you know what I did? I went to that village and I said, hey, I'd like to buy you guys some seeds as like a thank you for like having me this year. What do you want? Yeah. That's all it took. Me going, what do you what do you want? And they're like, we want chili peppers. And I'm like, that's not what I would have bought, but that's what they would like. So okay. I'll yeah. go get chili peppers. Like that's not that hard. Yeah, totally. Uh, what is it? What do you want? What do you need? You know, what is it that you yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, you still need chili peppers either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of comes down to this similar thing of just like not understanding the place that you're trying to help like even if your intentions are good like let's say it's not because you have this condescending paternalistic view or whatever it's just like lack of effort kind of just not an understanding I think of... it is quite condescending and imperial like just kind of assuming that you know better when you're not taking the time to like listen to people and listen to what's going on in their life like like, of course, I don't know better than these people about how to live in this environment. Yeah, I can say, please don't eat dead things that you find on the ground. Yeah. But, you know, pretty much past that, um, my knowledge is mostly useless to them. Every I grew up in um, in kind of like a rural area. And my, my parents were very pro growing your own food. Mm -hmm. And coming from South Florida, that means that I grew up actually growing a lot of the same things that 
the farmers that I work with grow, not rice. I didn't grow rice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know that they com- they're completely dismissive of any knowledge that I have. And they should be. It's irrelevant. The way <laughs> yeah. that to grow papaya and mangoes in South Florida is not the way. And doesn't doesn't my knowledge doesn't mean anything there. Like, I don't know how to protect a papaya tree against a troop of monkeys coming in. Um, but what we're trying to do is work with the community to we're do, running right now. We're monitoring for hopefully a full year. We're going to monitor the village's farmland to see like what animals are disturbing what crops to what extent to see if we can kind of shift and be like, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't try to grow X so much. We need to start growing Y because they're not as interested in Y right. as they are in X. Rather than just saying like, okay, well, here's some shotguns, go protect your farms. We can just say like, okay, well, what's going to make everyone happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like there's this, you know, you're coming at it from this place of like, yeah, trying to not just come in and tell people what to do. And I feel like that's the thing is like, because both sides of this equation, you know, the local people in these communities that, you know, we'll say Western countries are trying to help or like to make a show about, hey, we're helping. Mm-hmm. Um both sides actually do have relevant knowledge and things to bring to the table, right? Like it's like, so Mm -hmm. you can't come in there and tell them how to farm in their ecosystem or what's best for their ecosystem. Like they know that stuff, but what you can bring to the table is resources in terms of money and an open mind to be like, where can my knowledge fit in? And I feel like there's just Mm -hmm. like, it's like lacking the humility, you know, of being able to go in and say like, look at on this turf, you know, more than me. I'm going to bring a bunch of tools and, you know, monitoring tools and some knowledge about data collection and things like that, that might be able to help you and work together. Like that's such a, again, it seems like such a simple process that we're just like missing on like a very large scale, on a very large scale when it comes to foreign aid, when it comes to health initiatives, these kind of things. Yeah. I think people like to throw large amounts of money at problems um, rather than kind of take the time to see whether, and then because especially in those like that world bank funded project, they didn't really care what was going to happen five years down the line. They had their three year budget that they had to meet. And then they wanted to see what would happen by those three years. And then poof, everyone's gone. And everything that they did was, is literally crumbling to dust. Like they built a, they spent like a million us dollars building a, building i don't know what they intended it to be used for but it's like like 15 bedrooms and like fully plumbed flushing toilets that don't work because there's no one within a eight hour drive who would know how to fix a plumbed toilet and there's no way to get water to the build you know like it was just such a nonsensical thing but it looks good like oh look we've built this like like that organization you could say look we built four schools in this area i'm like okay you put up buildings yeah that didn't last more than six months but that's not the same as a school yeah um you know and they kind of run off of this numbers game like that organization they're like we've built we've built six thousand schools in in sierra leone and i'm like did you though (laughs) none almost none of them are functioning yeah um you know, I, they technically funded the school in the village that I spend a lot of my time. And there's no teacher there. Um, there's like an 18-year-old volunteer who tries his best, but also ha- like attended a two-day course in being a teacher and doesn't show up that often. Yeah. Because um, he doesn't get paid. So why would he? 
Yeah. I mean, it's like mm. if the goal is to educate people, that like that should be the goal, right? Like, are we educating mm -hmm. people and what is our metric not, for that rather than how many schools have we built? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it almost seems to me like we could use we almost need anthropologists and stuff looking at the psychology of the people who are doing this stuff. <laughs> Um, yeah, anthropology is great. It, well, anthropology has a lot of flaws. It has a lot of ties back to like horribly colonialist practices and things like that. Um, right. And I, but I think as long as you kind of acknowledge that and go into it being like, okay, well, how can I, how can I not continue that cycle? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And how can I make this a collaborative learning experience for everyone? And how can then we best put those into practice in a way that's digestible and understandable and not like culturally shocking to the people that you are trying to probably incite behavior change or help, you know, cause that's what yeah. disease communication is. We're trying, to, we're trying to make people change their behaviors to not contract this disease. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. I mean, in, in, it's like you see, you acknowledge the past. I mean, that, that happened. It has that past, that legacy, but what you're doing now is based in totally different, you know, motives, which is the important thing, you know, maybe you, techniques or whatever maybe are similar but the motives are different and if you're coming in it with that open mind of like i'm here to you know maybe try and change some behaviors around this specific thing but you can always be as long as you're i feel like as long as you're always turning that back on yourself too then you could be like well what am i like how am i changing how am i learning how am i growing you know mm -hmm. and it's like everybody's benefiting it's yeah yeah um and i guess personally in the way that i try to like accomplish that within the Panveras project is um because I think about this a lot I was on a, I was on a, another podcast once and they were like oh well how long are you going to stay there and I'm like I will s keep working with the Panveras project as long um up until a Sierra Leonean takes it over from me that's yeah. my goal yeah like my goal I'm not trying to like build this career off of this project I only started it because this national park was kind of falling apart before my eyes and I just wanted someone to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that that's largely led by Sierra, if not entirely led by Sierra Leoneans as soon as possible. Right. Um, that's my, that's my goal. My goal and what I feel like my job is, is to use the privilege that I've had to get like, you know, 10 years of higher education Um and help people kind of be able to use that to benefit their own, like where they're from and, you know, their own environment, their own culture and their own wildlife. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's great. So um, the Panveras, did I say it right? Panveras? Yes. P-A-N-V-E-R-S. And that's the... V-E-R-U-S. That's the website too, right? Panveras? Panveras.org. Right. And I believe there's a donation page on there. Yeah, if you guys want to donate, is that's mostly going towards salaries right now um, because we're not having any super formal research projects running um, because of COVID. Uh, but we're trying to keep up all of our salaries, mm -hmm. uh, especially right now because the economy in Sierra Leone is not doing fantastic, and that income means a lot to the people that you know receive it. Yeah, great. Panveras. And I mean, I, I've started following the website because there's a blog on there, I think, too. You're writing stuff there. Uh, I got you on Twitter. You, If you want to give your Twitter out to I, or not to to the people, uh, that's up to yeah, you. Yeah, no, I'm following 
follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. I use the same handle for all of them. Um, and it's at Sarah's Gone Wild. Uh, Sarah is spelled with an H. Um, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll put all that. Uh, I'll put all that out on our website and stuff too, because uh, it's really interesting work. And like I said, I'm, I'm interested to see what comes of the of the thesis and sort of the the stuff that you're finding out about messaging health messaging some misinformation it was a really really fascinating conversation for me i really appreciate you taking the time and good luck with the thesis i know what that's like so good luck with the <laughs> thank final you project. i definitely need it <laughs> uh, it's uh the end is nigh i am just hoping to get it done very soon wow what a chat you know i've always been fascinated by the idea that you know outbreaks are these sort of cultural events as much as they are biology uh, it's how we behave in these events that make them so fascinating to me so that was a really really interesting conversation for me I hope you enjoyed it as well many thanks again to Sarah Bell check her out on Twitter uh, Sarah's Gone Wild check out the Panveras project panveras.org and of course rate, subscribe, follow us Subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating, leave a comment, um, all of that great stuff. Twitter, at uh, 2Brad4U or at BVampaired on Instagram is the same handle. Thank you so much for listening. Love you guys. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>